Thank you, girls. A wonderful uh, song, well done, and a wonderful message for all of us. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, open please to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. <laughs> In this chapter, uh, we have the account of how a murderous persecutor of Christians was gloriously saved in a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus himself uh, as he traveled uh, to the city of Damascus on a mission to apprehend as many believers as he could and bring them back to Jerusalem uh, to face trial and certain death, uh, he encountered the Lord. Uh, he was miraculously saved Saul of Tarsus was, and in the city of Damascus, uh, his life was threatened. Uh, they conspired, came up with a strategy and a plan to kill him when he started uh, preaching, and he had to humble himself. He learned lessons of humility there in Damascus because he had to escape from the city by allowing other people to let him down over the city wall in a basket. Well, from there, he proceeded on to Jerusalem. Uh, and he tried, he attempted to um, join with the other disciples there. And it was when he got to Jerusalem that I believe this great apostle-to-be uh, learned lessons of rejection. Uh, because uh, the disciples there in the city of Jerusalem were very wary of Saul of Tarsus. Uh, after, after all, this was the foremost enemy of Christians. He was a murderer. He was Saul of Tarsus. And um, for good reason, the disciples there in Jerusalem were wary of his true conversion. So as a result... Uh, he was rejected in uh, Jerusalem by the other disciples. Well, at the urging of a man named Barnabas, Barnabas's name means son of encouragement, at Barnabas' urging and with his encouragement, um, Saul was accepted uh, and immediately began preaching. If you look at uh, verse 29, we'll read a couple verses there in Acts chapter 9. It says, And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. Talking about Saul now there in Jerusalem. He spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians. Those are the, the, the Gentiles. But they went about to slay him, which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. So here is Saul. He escaped with his life from Damascus, traveled to Jerusalem, was rejected by the other disciples there because of Barnabas. Uh, his uh, ministry was uh, launched, basically, 
and uh, now he finds himself preaching in Jerusalem and fearful for his life once again. So when those disciples in Jerusalem heard that they were trying to kill Saul, uh, they decided on, on another plan of escape. This time, they sent him to Caesarea, the port on the Mediterranean Sea, and Saul was to go back to his hometown. He was to sail back to Tarsus. Well, that's where we left Saul last week. Well, in verse 32 of chapter 9 of Acts, the curtain rises again on the Apostle Peter. Peter, there in uh, verse 32, it tells us that uh, he passed through all quarters. He went everywhere preaching. He came down also to the saints which dwelt at Lydda. Lydda. About 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem was the city of Lydda. And it was there that he healed a man named Aeneas. And if you look at verse 35, you'll see what the result was. All that dwelt at Lydda and Sauron saw him, saw this man who had been healed, and turned to the Lord because of Peter's ministry, because of his healing ministry to this man. Well, we find out that in verse 36, he then travels from Lydda down to Joppa. Uh, Joppa, seaport, about 10 miles from Lydda. And in Joppa, Peter raises a woman named Tabitha, also known as Dorcas, from the dead. Now, Dorcas was a prominent believer there in the city of Joppa, and she did many good works and kind deeds for other people, and she died. And Peter went to Joppa, and he raised Dorcas from the dead. Well, when this miracle became known in Joppa, look at what the result was in verse 33. In verse 42, I'm sorry, and it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So here we are tonight. Verse 43 tells us it came to pass that he, that's Peter, tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon, a tanner. So here we have the great apostle Peter having a wonderful ministry. And we have Saul of Tarsus hiding out for his life back in his hometown of Tarsus. Well, Acts is a transitional book. In chapter 10, even though Saul is not mentioned in chapter 10, it is a very significant, pivotal chapter in the book of Acts. Because you see, in chapter 2, Peter opened the door of faith, salvation to the Jews. In chapter 8, we saw the door of faith was opened to the Samaritans. Those were half Jews and half Gentile. 
And now what we're going to see here in chapter 10, and, and we're going to follow Peter just a little while here in this chapter because I think it's significant. We see in chapter 10 the opening of the door of faith to the Gentiles. This was revolutionary. Chapter 10 of Acts, beginning in verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. Caesarea, that was a Roman city located on the seashore of Mediterranean. It was the Roman capital of Palestine, uh, about 30 miles uh, 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 north of Joppa, about 65 miles from Jerusalem. That was the, actually, that was the port that was closest to Jerusalem, Caesarea was. And it's about 30 miles north of Joppa. That's where, remember, that's where Peter is right now. It took Herod 12 years to build the city of Caesarea. And if you look at that word Caesarea, you can guess who that city is named after. Caesar. It took him 12 years uh, to build uh, that city. Uh, it had assembly halls. It had an amphitheater. It had a temple to the emperor in Rome, Augustus. And it even had a drainage system and an aqueduct to bring fresh drinking water into the city. So it was quite a city. But there was also the hometown of a man named Cornelius. And there was a Roman garrison located in Caesarea that housed about 3,000 Roman soldiers. Cornelius was a Roman soldier. As a matter of fact, we're told that Cornelius was a centurion. You see, a Roman legion was composed of 6,000 soldiers. A cohort was 600 soldiers. So there were 10 cohorts in a Roman legion. Now, each cohort of 600 soldiers was made up of six bands, a hundred men each. So there were six bands in a cohort. Ten cohorts comprised a Roman legion. Cornelius was in charge of one of those bands of a hundred men called the Italian band. You see, Cornelius was a centurion, and he had the same military rank as the Roman soldier who was in charge of executing the Lord Jesus at his crucifixion. Well, centurions were kind of the backbone of the Roman army, but it's a well-known fact that not always were these centurions uh, model citizens. They were not always men of sterling and upright character. But we learn very quickly here in these verses that Cornelius was an exception. Cornelius was a God-fearing Gentile soldier. You see, there were some Gentiles who were actually attracted 
uh, to the morality and the ethical standards of the Jewish religion. So even though they were not Jews, they were attracted to the character and the, the, the traits and the characteristics and the morality and the ethics of the Jewish people. Cornelius was one of those. Some even attended synagogues and learned a lot about the Jewish religion. Some even gave alms gifts to the poor. Cornelius was one of these people. Cornelius was a devout and honest and a sincere man. He was a good man, but he knew nothing of the gospel. And he was a Gentile. But Cornelius here in chapter 10 is going to respond in faith to the truth and the light that had already been revealed to him. And he's about to be enlightened further. Because you see, in verse 3 of chapter 10, Cornelius has a vision. He saw in a vision, verse 3, evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid. And said, what is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now, send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. And when the angel which spake unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he had declared all these things unto them, he sent them to Joppa. The angel of the Lord told Cornelius, he said, go to Joppa and seek one named Peter. Joppa was about 30 miles away. It was a seaport for Jerusalem, as we said, about 35 miles away, uh, 30 to 35 miles away. And the question is, why didn't the angel give Cornelius the message? Why did the angel tell Cornelius, you've got to go send for Peter, who's in Joppa? 30 miles away. Well, can I tell you that God has not given the ministry of sharing or preaching the gospel to angels. Do you know that sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ is a privilege that only you and I have? And it's a privilege that the angels don't even have. Angels don't tell people how to be saved. They minister to people, but they are not able to give the gospel to other people. That is a privilege reserved only for men and women. Only people can share the gospel message with other people. So that's why the angel said to Cornelius, you got to go to Joppa and get 
Peter, and he'll tell you what you need to do. Now, keep in mind, as I said before, Cornelius is, is a Gentile. Well, in verses 9 through 22, we find out that God is at work. Because the day after Cornelius has his vision, Peter, in Simon the Tanner's house, in Joppa, 30 miles away, is having a vision. God prepares us for what he is preparing us for. It's been said that God is at work, and when he's at work, he leads at both ends of the line. And that could not be more true than in this case right here. Peter was in Joppa, staying at Simon the Tanner's house. Cornelius was in Caesarea, 30 miles away. But they both had visions. Peter's vision came the day after Cornelius' vision. And it was coming to Peter as Cornelius' messengers were approaching Joppa. Well, Peter was up on the, the roof of the house. He was up on the upper level. Uh, he was hungry, waiting for lunch to be prepared. He had a vision. And in his vision, he saw all kinds of creatures, uh, both clean and ceremonial unclean, being let down in a sheet, descending from heaven. Oh, it may have contained pigs, it may have contained reptiles, may have contained some buzzards, uh, may have contained some owls and some seagulls and maybe some lobsters and all kinds of creeping things, all which were considered unholy and unclean by the Jews. And God told Peter, kill and eat. This vision occurred three times. But you know what Peter did? Well, being Peter, being a good Jew, he responded, not so, Lord. His Jewish conscience would not allow him to eat anything that was prohibited by the Levitical law. He was not about to eat anything unclean. But you know, you can't say, Lord, and not so at the same time. You know, if he's truly Lord, we can't say, not so, Lord. We can say, not so. We cannot say, not so, Lord. We have to be obedient to what God wants us to do. Peter saw in that vision, he saw a picture of all mankind. Millions of inhabitants who populated the earth all bound together in one bundle. You see, Peter had a beautiful attitude toward God, but he had a lousy attitude toward people of the world who were not Jewish. God had to change his heart and change his attitude, and that's exactly what he was doing with this vision. God had to help Peter overcome some prejudice. The gospel is not going to be just for the Jewish people. The gospel 
is for everyone. And God needed to move Peter out of that thinking and out of that comfort zone and make him willing to share the gospel with Gentiles. The Holy Spirit said to Peter there in Joppa, He said, Arise, get thee down and go. Do you know about 800 years earlier, there was another man to whom God said, Go. That was the prophet Jonah. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Go preach to those Assyrians. You know where Jonah was? He was in Joppa. He didn't go. 800 years later, God tells Peter the same place to go to the Gentiles. Peter doesn't understand it. But he spoke to him and Peter obeys. Well, in verses 23 through 33 there of that chapter, we see Peter going down to um, Joppa, or going to Caesarea from Joppa to preach the gospel to Cornelius. Uh, Cornelius had called together his family and his friends. And God works in ways that we don't understand. Cornelius was completely willing to do exactly whatever this Jewish preacher had to say to him. They were about to have the first cross-cultural Bible study ever recorded. You see, because up to this point, none of the apostles had preached to the Gentiles. Even the Samaritans that they preached to were half Jewish. But God is now introducing a new program Because through the cross of Jesus Christ, God had broken down all division between Jews and Gentiles. You remember what Paul said when he wrote the letter to the Romans? In Romans 1.16, Paul said this, and that's why this chapter is important, because Paul is going to become the apostle to the Gentiles. And here's what he recorded in Romans 1:16. You know this verse, or at least you know part of it. Paul said, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth." To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Those are the Gentiles. So you see, God is opening this door of grace, this door of salvation, this way of the cross to the Gentiles. Peter preaches the Word in verses 34 through 38 there of Acts chapter 9. Peter uh, preaches the, the Word. He reviewed Jesus' ministry. And the key verse, I think, in that passage is verse 43 because look at Acts 10 43 he says about Jesus to him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins boy that was a big step for Peter to be able to say that The gospel had only been for the Jews. And now it's available to everyone. Even these 
Gentiles. Well, the moment these people believed, they were saved. Because it tells us in verse 44, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. Cornelius and his household and his close friends who were gathered there believed and were saved. There was no invitation. There was no altar call, just the Holy Spirit speaking to their hearts, and they were led to Christ. The moment they believed, they were saved. Peter learned a lesson that God has no favorites in the human race. Anyone from any nation can be saved on the same basis by grace through faith. Gentiles could actually be the recipients of God's grace just like the Jews had been. And that's the importance of chapter 10 of the book of Acts. Well, bad news travels fast. It doesn't take long. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Just, you, you can just see this picture in your mind, I'm sure. Acts 11.1 And the apostles and brethren that were in Judea Remember, Jerusalem is in Judea. So the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision, those are the Jews, they contended with him, saying, Thou wentest in to men uncircumcised and didst eat with them. Well, verses 4 through 17 contain Peter's response. And the conclusion of the whole matter, I believe, is in verse 18, if you look there. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. In the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, there's no preference, there's no favoritism of any kind. The gospel's for everyone, regardless of their culture, their religion, their background, their social standing, it is for everyone. And Peter and the early apostles needed to learn that lesson and that truth. The Lord used division to reveal this truth concerning the gospel to Peter in order to bring about a radical change in their thinking and acceptance of the gospel being presented to the Gentiles. And aren't you glad that he did? Do you realize that otherwise the door of salvation may not have been open to the Gentiles? And you and I may never have had the privilege of hearing the gospel. 
I'm glad the Lord gave Peter that vision. Because this opens the door for the way of salvation to all of those churches, all of those cities, all of those Gentiles that the Apostle Paul is going to preach to in the days ahead. That's the importance of chapter 10 of the book of Acts. Well, we've now got Saul in Tarsus, and we've got Peter in Joppa. He went up to uh, Jerusalem. And let's look now at verse 19 of chapter 11. Now, they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which, when they were come to Antioch, spoke unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. See, now they're preaching to the Gentiles. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. The city of Antioch was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, about 20 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea. And during the first century, Antioch was the third largest city in the world, only behind Rome and Alexandria. It was a melting pot for at least five cultures that we know for sure, because there, there, there were inhabiting that city Greeks and Romans and Jews, Arabs and Persians. Antioch was famous for its chariot racing. It was also famous for something else. It was a city that was well known for its indulgence in worldly pleasures. The city was known for its worship of the goddess Daphne. There was an impressive temple to Daphne that was located about five miles out of downtown. And the worship of Daphne included daily rituals involving her priestesses who were in fact temple prostitutes. Throughout the world, the expression, the morals of Daphne, <laughs> that was a way of talking about moral depravity. That's the city where the revival was breaking out. That's the city that those church leaders in Jerusalem heard about. Where the gospel was being preached and people were being saved. And in verse 22, they heard about that commotion among all those Gentiles being saved and they decided to send Barnabas down there to check it out. 
This wicked, sinful city was the place of what was to be one of the greatest Gentile churches of the first century. So they sent Barnabas down there. In verse 22, they sent him down there to Antioch to check things out. That's exactly what Barnabas did. He went down there. He remained in Antioch. And the ministry was going so well that pretty soon it became too much for Barnabas. Verse 23 says, Who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. Remember, Barnabas is the son of encouragement. And what's he doing? He goes down there. He sees his church full of Gentile believers and he encourages them to cleave unto the Lord. I hope and pray that here at, at our church, that we will always be mindful of encouraging one another and encouraging others to cleave to the Lord. Do you know there are a lot of people who don't cleave to the Lord? They cleave for a little while and then they leave for a long time. Barnabas saw what was going on in that Gentile church and thank God that the gospel has been opened to the Gentiles. He was glad and he encouraged those believers to cleave unto the Lord. Let's be sure that we encourage others like Barnabas did to cleave to the Lord. We see in verse 24 that Barnabas was a, a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Matter of fact, as I said, the ministry was going so well that he probably needed some help. Well, as Barnabas is there in the church in Antioch, he begins thinking of Saul of Tarsus. You know, it had been, most Bible commentators will tell you that the last time Barnabas and Saul saw each other was eight to ten years ago. What could Saul have been thinking during that time? I just let my mind kind of run wild a little bit this week and thought, if I were in his shoes, what would be some of the things that I would be thinking about? Well, I'd think about how after I was saved, I spent three years in that wilderness of Sinai, pretty much alone by myself, letting the Lord speak to me and teach me and minister to me. I thought about how during that time I had been thoroughly trained and taught lessons by the Lord Himself. I thought about the lessons that I had learned in Damascus where it was dangerous to preach the Gospel. I'd learned about the rejection that I experienced in Jerusalem from the other disciples until they were convinced of the genuineness of my conversion. It deepened my relationship with the Lord and developed my mind to the point that I learned all those great theological truths that God Himself 
had revealed to me. And now I've been here in Tarsus for up to 10 years. Saul was back in Tarsus. That was his hometown. As a believer now, back in his hometown, don't you know that he was probably disowned by his family? Don't you know that he was probably ostracized by the Jewish religious leaders who were there? Could he have been entertaining thoughts that maybe this temporary waiting period might be permanent? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? I thought there was going to be more to this than spending my life here in my hometown of Tarsus. Do you think Saul ever experienced times of anxiety or discouragement? During his time in his hometown, do you think he perhaps was disillusioned, disappointed, discouraged? You know, waiting on the Lord is one of the hardest things that we as believers are ever called on to do. It requires faithfulness to the Lord. It requires great effort. It involves continuing to cleave to the Lord. And it involves a great amount of patience. But once again, I will say, as we've seen already in the life of this great apostle, God is not finished teaching him what he needs to know. Because you see, <laughs> waiting is one of God's preferred methods for preparing special people to do special things. You know, there were some people that I thought of this week in the Bible who had to wait. Remember David. You know, David had to wait a long time to become the king of Israel after he was anointed to be the king. Do you know that Moses spent 40 years shepherding sheep before he became the shepherd of Israel to lead that flock out of Egypt? Remember Joseph? Joseph waited many, many years amidst grievous circumstances to become the prime minister of Egypt and eventually the savior of his family and his people. I believe God prepares his choicest servants most often through those extended periods of waiting. Have you ever had to wait on the Lord? Did it ever seem to you that you prayed prayers and they never went any higher than the ceiling? Did you ever feel that as you prayed and sought the Lord that He had turned a deaf ear to what you were asking or praying for? Boy, I have. The great apostle was going to learn that God is not in a hurry and that he had something special in mind for this great apostle.
The Lord prepares us during those times when it seems like the whole world is passing by us and we're just spinning our wheels, stuck in neutral, not going anywhere. You ever had to wait on the Lord? Are you waiting on Him now? Is it possible that He might be preparing you for something great that He wants you to do for Him? Maybe He has a ministry already picked out for you that He needs you to submit your will to His and work in. Maybe He's preparing you for something that He has prepared for you. I believe that was the case with the Apostle. Well, Barnabas is now serving in that church there in Antioch. He knew of Saul's commission to the Gentiles. This was a great Gentile church. He knew of Saul's testimony. He knew how Saul had been gloriously saved. He went to bat for Saul with those religious leaders in Jerusalem. He knew Saul's testimony and the genuineness of his faith. He knew Saul's skills and abilities. And even though it's been some eight to ten years, he also knew that he needed some help in the ministry. We're going to close tonight in chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. First place, the believers were, Saul, were called Christians was in that wicked, sinful, worldly city of Antioch. But God had a great work for Saul. Barnabas knew it. He went to Tarsus to seek Saul, and he brought him back to work with him there in that church in Antioch. Let's be open and obedient to whatever it is that God has for us tonight. I don't know what God's will and plan is for your life. I can tell you what it's been for mine for many years now. Don't know what it is for yours. Barnabas went to seek Saul. And you know what Saul did? After eight to ten years, he went with Barnabas back to serve the Lord. And man was the apostle back and ready to go. Because there's some great things that we're going to see in the next few weeks in the life of Saul that is going to revolutionize his life and affect the then known world. And we still feel its effects today. Let's pray. Lord, it's so difficult for us when we have to wait on you. Lord, our human nature is such that we're not patient people. 
But Lord, once again, we thank you for the life and the testimony of this great apostle that you are preparing to do a work for you unlike has ever been done in the world since. Lord, help us look to you for our guidance and our direction. And Lord, help us to be obedient to you as we are challenged by the lives of Barnabas and Saul in the areas of obedience. Lord, I pray that we'll be obedient to you just as they were. And Lord, we look forward to serving you diligently and cleaving to you closely in these days ahead and throughout this year of 2024. Go before us, lead us, guide us, and give us hearts to be obedient to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.